Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Carolina and Megan Talks. And today we have a very special guest, Jay. Thanks for coming on our show today. Um, we normally, I guess, how would you, how would you introduce yourself do you, um, when you kind of are speaking to um, a new audience? Um, well, thank you both for having me. This is the first time I've ever been interviewed by two people at one time. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see how this goes. Um, cool. I, I am a mental health and substance misuse uh, and recovery speaker, coach, and advocate, and the host of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. Great. And so I, I think we we kind of are starting the second season of this podcast. We're getting to interview people, and so we talk about we our keywords that we start to like. Um, Toastmasters was one, um, podcast was one, mental health was one. Um, so it's awesome that you also have a podcast. How'd you get started with that? Yeah, so I, my background is in public speaking, and uh, at least in, in as far as this topic goes. And when the pandemic, uh, you know, when, when the warnings were there that the pandemic was going to be as bad as it unfortunately ended up being, uh, I was looking for a way to continue getting my message out there. And uh, about a month before that, a, a client of mine said, you know, you, you really make a great podcast host. And I was like, oh, man, everybody's got a podcast. I'm not going to start a podcast. Mm -hmm. And then my best friend, who's a comedian in Chicago, started a podcast. And I said, man, I love you. You know, we, we go back 20 years. If you can do this, I can do this. So, uh, you know, it was, it's been a godsend. I've been so lucky to have this during the pandemic because, uh, you know, it, it, there are so many people who are public speakers and during this period have kind of just been stuck. And I feel for all of them, but like, if you can't find a way to pivot, if you can't find a way to continue providing service, then you're not actually about this message or about you know this lifestyle, and instead you're kind of just looking for ways to make money. Um, and so it's been really interesting to see those who deeply care about the subjects of mental health, or in my case, substance misuse as well, and drug policy. That's been a big part of my podcast. Uh, who have found ways to continue getting their message out, as opposed to sort of sitting on their hands and going, "I hope this uh, ends soon." Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I listened to um, one of your podcasts where you were talking about um, AA and just the idea of um, just not bringing it up. That's kind of a part of it. Um, so, um, and do you kind of encourage people to um, speak out? Uh, I know because I know you you do, but um, is that one of the things that you encourage? Is kind of speaking out or? kind of um i don't know um yeah that's a that's a great question and the answer is is sort of uh depends on the person you know sort of going back for a minute because we're examining especially in the wake of the of the brutal george floyd murder and, and brianna taylor's murder especially the way that the stigma around drug use has basically colored everything in our country's history when it comes to policy, when it comes to our ideas around substance misuse uh, and even mental health. So to put this in context a little bit, you know, until very recently, and I mean the last five or so years, if somebody was trying to recover from substance misuse, they pretty much were going through AA. That was the only method, or they were doing it on their own, which is what I did. I did not go through AA. 
And AA, as it is literally in the name, is anonymous. Like that's a big part of their of their thing. And that's because when they were founded, you know, we're talking the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, there was a lot of stigma around struggling with substance misuse, not as much alcohol, although obviously that existed, but that stigma came from a very uh, intentional effort by our government to paint drug users as degenerates. And they were doing that because they were trying to um, make popular, popularize this idea that only black and brown people use drugs, which was flat out false. In fact, the numbers made it very clear that that was not the case. But, but that wasn't the goal. The goal wasn't actually anti-drug. The goal was anti-black and brown Americans. So when AA was being formed, they wanted to distance themselves from black people who, you know, were, were this, um, the, the stigma went, were using heroin and brown Americans were using marijuana, which is a made up term uh, that was actually an American word to try to sound Mexican, which is really something a lot of people don't know. It's just mind blowing to me. Um, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> until, until the twenties and the thirties, cannabis was in, you know, every white person's medicine cabinet, but they wanted to distance this from what they were trying to do to mostly Mexican immigrants. And so they came up with this word, this word marijuana. There was no J at the time, it was marijuana with an H to try to scare people away from the drug and paint it as a Mexican problem, which it wasn't. I mean, this was completely fabricated. So AA comes into existence and they want to be anonymous because they are scared for their members. Well, if they were known to be, you know, using substances in a bad way, then they're no better than those, you know, just fill in all the horrible things you can think of. That's where the anonymous piece comes from. Obviously, that's not the case anymore. We're over, you know, we're 100 years later. We know all of this horrible history we're trying to get away from it and what's the easiest way by taking this back and saying struggling with substance misuse is not a crime it doesn't make you a loser a degenerate all these horrible things and we now know that there was a secret war on black and brown americans for almost a hundred years to try to paint them as drug users when in fact, uh, in fa in Michelle Alexander's book that the, um, the new Jim Crow paints this so perfectly, most drug dealers in this country are white. That's something most of, that is not pu uh, publicized because even the news focuses on these stories of the black drug dealer. None of this is real. It's an extreme minority, but it's, it's tied into this, this uh, war on drugs that's been going on really for about a hundred years. So, so was, I'm sorry, that was a long way to go to answer your question and <laughs> saying, I do believe that we need to be talking about this because it ends stigma and helps expose these lies. But there's also still a lot of stigma there. And if somebody doesn't want to be open with their struggles, I completely understand. Yeah, because I know even um, with families, so, um, I, you know, with family friends, they don't really want to talk about what's going on was like with people in the family because it's like okay you know it's keep it in the family sort of thing um so um with your job um and career path of um i know you have a consulting um company um and you are really focusing on something that you feel is kind of in your purpose um how are those conversations now with family 
um, since normally they're stigmatized, but you've kind of made it very clearly that that's what, that's what you want to talk about. That's what you're focused on. So how, how has that impacted your relationship with family? That's a wonderful question. And you're definitely right. And by the way, for your listeners, um, I am Jewish and that keep it in the family attitude. Uh, I mean, it might as well be all of our last names, right? We are very much uh, uh, keeping up with the Joneses type of people here. So I, I, I appreciate that question. I wish I could tell you that every single person in my family now went to therapy. That's just not the case. There is a generational divide. So I'm the oldest of four boys. And three of the four are open about seeing therapists. Um, the fourth one just isn't as much, but he's not against it. He just isn't as uh, up with that as, as we are. Um, and one of my other brothers is a podcast host as well, has had me on his podcast, and we've had great conversations. My parents, one of my parents, my dad, is more open about this. Uh, he meditates every day and is sort of open to having these conversations. My mom is a little bit more old school style thinking. Um, you know, she, she thinks, uh, she literally said to me, so she came to visit my wife and I, uh, my parents both did, and we were having dinner and we got into a, a very animated discussion around mental health. And my mother looks at me and says, I'm not against therapists. I just think that everyone other than me should see one. So that should tell you a <laughs> bit about, of, about my mother. And then my grandparents are, are like the flip. So unfortunately, I've lost both of my grandfathers in the last year. But, but both of my grandmothers are very sort of uh, open to learning about this, right? So my, one of my grandmothers and I have very honest conversations about why it's so important to talk about these issues. Um, the other one has just been more open because when I was going through my worst uh, periods, when I was going through detox, I was living with her. And so she saw it up close. And when you see it up close, uh, you, you don't run from it anymore, right? You, you, you know, you have that personal connection. So um, it, it is, it's, a, it's a thing that we all openly talk about, not to say that, uh, that my entire family is more woke on this now than they were before, but it's, we're moving in the right direction. Oh, yeah, that's actually kind of interesting, speaking about generations and how they see mental health. I um, had a period when I dropped out of school and went through this really dark kind of place and lived with my grandpa. Um, and so... Um, I thought like just kind of prejudging that, um, you know, it was like, okay, don't talk about how you're feeling X, Y, Z, but you'd be surprised that like the great conversations we were able to have about it and like sharing your experiences. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's kind of like some of the people that you think might not get it or like, okay, you know, based on like how I think their generation is, they might be a little more closed-minded and, you know, just kind of completely write you off um you you just don't know um so that was a good um that was interesting to bring up yeah. um and I think like you know your hashtag with end the stigma uh I, I do agree that the more we talk about it the more it is sort of normalized uh quote unquote just because I I, I have the feeling just have, have you guys ever experienced this in college or classes when you start talking about oh I have trouble with this question and then everyone else is like, yeah, yeah, me too. But then mm -hmm. until then, no one, no one speaks. No one talks about right. it. Like, no one brings it up first. It's as if it's a game of like, oh, if I speak about it first, I'm going to lose, quote unquote. But I think mm -hmm. it's just to the benefit of everyone to take care of our mental health. It's as important as our physical health. Just like how we do like uh, physical checkups at least once a year. We should, you know, track our mental health as well. Definitely. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's it. So there's a story I always tell that, that I think highlights this. Um, 
again, going back to my grandma, not the one I live with, but, but the other one. So her daughter, my aunt, is currently fighting cancer. And I was talking to my grandma about this. And she was it was right after I'd given a, a speech to a big group and I was telling her about it. And she said, you know, you're so brave for, for telling your story. I said, that's so interesting. Let me ask you something. Uh, my aunt, you know, do you think she's brave for talking about her fight with cancer? And she said, no, you know, not at all. I said, but she's brave for going through it. And she said, oh, of course. And I said, why is she brave for going through this fight with cancer? And I'm brave for talking about my experience, right? That's what we need to change is I want to get to a point where people say you're so brave for fighting this and not you're so brave for being open about this because that's a mm. huge gap that we need to close. Yeah, because the talking about it is probably like fear of judgment of others. I know a lot of the time that's one of the reasons why I won't say something. Um, where Yeah, that's, that's really, yeah, because a lot of the times people, I mean, I think it, it's kind of like, they don't hear it and so it's like dang like you're you're um mm, that's a good point so it's um, interesting because you're definitely right that there is that fear of judgment and what i found is that i get one of two answers when i speak because i was terrified of this in the first five years i was in recovery i never spoke up about it my, my close friends didn't know i had you know women that i was dating who never knew that i was in recovery but but then i sort of got over that and started speaking. And I get one of two responses. Number one is someone um, comes up and sort of what you were saying, uh, Carolina, before, then they want to tell me, right? Then they want to talk about their experience because, oh my God, somebody understands, somebody is willing to talk about it. He must be willing to, you know, let me talk, which is always true. Or I get the people who immediately put up a wall, not because they want to shame me or something like that, but because they are terrified of that level of vulnerability. They're terrified of opening up themselves. And they know that having being a part of this conversation means, oh, there's going to be a moment where I have to do that. And that is incredibly scary for people. And quite frankly, it's not their fault. We have made it so that vulnerability is seen as a sign of weakness. And when people say that's not true, I say, really? Look at our president right now. He is seen as this hero to a lot of people in this country because he, quote unquote, never loses, right? He is, even though he does, he doesn't talk about it. He doesn't admit failure. He literally had this disease that's killing hundreds of thousands of people. And he taught, oh, I made it my bitch and all this stupid shit. That is the problem that we're seeing right now. And that keeps people from getting the help they need because they're seen as even talking about it is a sign of weakness. Well, we need to we need to get past that BS. We need to get to a point where people can admit that they're struggling and say, I need help. Mm-hmm. And, and so like, go ahead. You know, uh, I think I wanted to just like expand upon that because on your LinkedIn headline, you have a vulnerable storyteller. And maybe Megan, you wanted to elaborate on that because I think that was something that you related a lot to, and that's something that caught your eye a lot. Sorry, um, it paused for a little bit, um, but you're talking about his header? Yeah, with um, the vulnerable storyteller. Yeah, so um, I just kind of always like to, like, um, when, when I think it starts with, like, telling one person your story first, and then it's like, okay, it's kind of like, for me, it was like, sharing a moment that was kind of gray and so I feel like when there's a grayness people are kind of like 
picking, they kind of pick holes to try to kind of clarify that situation. Um, and so for me, like my first, like I, there was a girl um, that uh, I had kind of texted and it became the story. And then that's how it became. I feel like sometimes your experiences can become a story of its own and kind of run, run, like it kind of just is, is its own entity. Um, and so I know um, you, uh, I don't know if since these stories, is that your first time kind of opening up about um what happened yeah and i actually have never heard of that so i had to look yeah. into it i'm like what are your stories um so, but who got you into that yeah so uh it's kind of a funny story and i tell this a lot because um it's how i got over the stigma and you're right that the story it's really interesting i love a good story and in fact i have this dream of of doing you know storytelling events when we can get back out in the real world again and and um, I just think stories are so uh, impactful. Um, in fact, there's been a lot of science done that that's how our brains learn best is that our brains basically love a good story and people can learn more by following along a story that has interesting topics or has uh, lessons learned in it than they can just by reading a textbook, right? So mm -hmm. there's, there's something about a story that's so universal. For me... Um, like I said, I was I was in recovery for about five years before I really started talking about it. And there's a, a guy named Sean Braley in Cincinnati and, and his partner, Chris Ash, uh, Ashworth. Ooh, I can't believe I'm getting it wrong. Um, but they run Cincy Stories, right? And it's this amazing event that brings uh, a bunch of people out to, you know, a bar event space, depending on how big the, the event's going to be. And they get well-known or uh, influential Cincinnatians to tell their origin story. So uh, he had just started this and, and, and he and I were friends. We got to know each other at the first event because I went to this and was so blown away by this idea of, of getting people to tell their stories on stage. And so we got to, to hanging out and chatting and I told him, you know, I'm, I'm in recovery and he's like, oh my God, you got to tell this story. And I was like, hell no, I'm not going to tell this story. Uh, like I was believing that, that stigma, right? And uh, about about a month ago, I was on an interview and somebody said to me, well, but why were you, you know, did somebody tell you you shouldn't tell this story, that you should be ashamed of being in recovery? And that question knocked me on my ass because the fact is no one ever told me that. I had just internalized this from the world around me, that being in recovery was a thing I should be ashamed of, that I was a loser and all this bullshit, right? So uh, I, I say no to, to Sean uh, two times. And then he asked me again, he's like, dude, this is such a great story. You have to tell this. And, and I'm not, it's not that I'm well-known, but I had a lot of friends in Cincinnati. Uh, I come from a family that is very well-known in Cincinnati. And so he was like excited about this opportunity. And he asked me, I said, no. And then I went home for dinner and I was having, uh, uh, I was seeing my parents and I walked into my dad's office and I remember this moment, it, literally like it, it just happened yesterday. My dad's sitting there reading the New York Times and I sit down and I start telling him about this experience, um, you know, that I've been asked multiple times to do this storytelling event. And he says, uh, well, well, why wouldn't you do it? And I said, well, I'm, I'm terrified. And he lowers the paper. He looks right at me. And he goes, fear is never a good reason not to do something. And then lifts back up the paper as if he doesn't realize he just blew my entire world up, right? <laughs> so the next day I call Sean and I was like, hey, man, you want to grab breakfast? And he was like, yes. And so as I sit down and he goes, he's like looking at me. I'm like, all right, ask me again. He goes, will you do this? I was like, yes. So uh, then I did quick, it. Quick, quick question. So was Sean... Uh 
when you first met him, was he like a stranger? Um, like, and you, so you kind of shared your story to a stranger essentially or somebody you didn't know? We bonded over our love of story. So uh, he, um, his first event went, was amazingly done. I was just so impressed by this. And then I went to the second one and somebody backed out. And so Sean, being this incredible guy that he is, jumped up on stage, took the, the, the you know, he was the host, but he was like, mm -hmm. I mean, I have to fill this spot and what am I going to do? Grab a rando out of the audience? So he tells a story uh, uh, the, uh, you know, letting everybody there know that he had actually recently been divorced and nobody knew that, right? So mm -hmm. I was so impressed by this that, that he and I grabbed a, a lunch or breakfast or something. Uh, and at the time, um, I was uh, running the Make-A-Wish office for Cincinnati. So uh, not exactly a low profile job and, and sort of a high uh, intensity, you know, I wore a suit every day to work. I was trying to land these, these tens of $20,000 donations. And, and so that was a part of it was that I was afraid of that vulnerability because I was afraid to lose uh, everything that I thought I would if I admitted that this you know, huge failure, right? That's how I saw this. Mm -hmm. So once I did it, I, I tell my story where I, there's about 150 people there. I know probably half the room. And I would say other than two or three people, nobody really knew this story. Now, they may have known, you know, oh, Jay disappeared for a year, or one of my brothers was there. So obviously, he knew, but but there was not a huge understanding. So I get off stage, and I go over to the bar. And I should say to your listeners, by the way, because this is important, I'm in recovery, but I'm not sober. Lucky for me, my experience was, uh, was never a problem with alcohol. And I say lucky to me, because as you understand, being from the Midwest, a whiskey is pretty much the greatest thing in the world. Uh, so I can have a drink and not, you know, struggle the way that I, I did with, with prescription pills. So I go over to the bar and I grab a drink and I'm just in my own head saying, well, that's it. I've ruined my life. Uh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to lose my social capital. All my friends are going to run away from me, all this bullshit. And the exact opposite happens. People come running over, I'm mobbed. My brother is bawling and he gives me a hug. I mean, it was a beautiful moment. And it really showed me in real time how much that stigma can impact you because there was zero truth to it. You know, I didn't lose my job. And in fact, here I am five years later with a completely new career that is so much more fulfilling. And mm -hmm. the next day I was invited to do a TED event um, you know, for those who don't know, Ted is the biggest storytelling, uh, you know, uh, speech uh, opportunity basically in the world. And mm -hmm. they have three levels. They have the big ones you see, you know, in, in Stockholm and all that kind of stuff. They have the TEDx, which are what you see on your college campuses. And then they have what's called Ted Salon, which are these happy hours that people come to where the entertainment is storytelling. So I was invited to do it to do one of those. And that was right after I told my story for the first time. And I get off stage at this event and this guy walks over to me and he says, hey, would you mind coming back to the kitchen for a minute? And I said, okay. So I go back and it turns out they've had the audio on in the kitchen uh, from the storytelling. And this event space where they, were, where they had this happy hour had a practice of only hiring people in recovery to work in their kitchen. So they'd all heard me tell my story and we end up sitting down and all having like a little mini session. Everyone's telling their stories. Uh, to say that there wasn't a dry eye in the house would be an understatement. Um, I feel very badly for anyone who ordered food during that time because it did not come out to them. But it was a really <laughs> beautiful moment. 
and uh, the ball has just been rolling since. So I, I am living proof that if you can get over that fear of the stigma and of all the, the ramifications that you've made up in your mind, or that you know these these outdated ideas about society will teach you, great things can happen. Mm. What do you think about regionally, like um, as far as where you live in the country and how accepting people are? of you there like so midwest like we're both from cincy i think it's a pretty conservative city um and so um and i've been around like just a lot of people with um i guess like that work in corporate um and so you talked about like okay i'm gonna lose my social capital if i mention xyz um or even people who like i know the mental health um community is growing on different on different platforms but still if you have a company are you speaking on like response to your company like there's all these things to think about um so like reasonably um do you feel do you feel i don't know a shift in conversation um in places like the midwest or um I don't, you don't live in cincinnati anymore do you no. Um, so in a year and a couple of months ago, my wife and I moved to Charleston, South Carolina to be near her family during a, a, a family members going through some health stuff. So mm-hmm. to answer your question, I'm going to do it a couple different ways. First off, um, when, you know, these ideas are not universal, right? Obviously you live in a place uh, that is more progressive. There's still going to be people who are going to judge you. And, and yes, there may be someone who loses their job because they decide to speak out about their mental health, which is horrible, but that is reality. Mm-hmm. The difference is, you know, you lose your job in Bumbleton, Wyoming, because you spoke out about your mental health. You may not get another job. Like that is a reality. Now there, there's chances, but there are few and far between. In Cincinnati, it is very conservative, but we're it's, it's more progressive, I think, than even I realized until I moved to Charleston. The South is pretty discriminatory on almost every level. Yeah. The, 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 the idea of the Southern nice is only because they force people not to talk about things. So that's why everyone's so nice. They just don't talk about things. Um, it's been rough here. And my wife and I are gonna be leaving here in the spring to move to Philadelphia. Uh, where it is much more progressive. Um, there are a lot of organizations that do incredible work around substance misuse. Uh, but to put sort of, sort of an example, um, down here in South Carolina, there is only currently one needle exchange in the entire state uh, that's above, above ground. There's a bunch that are underground. And uh, needle exchange, again, for anyone listening who doesn't know, is where someone who is, who is currently using a substance can bring a dirty needle or in some cases just show up and get clean needles. The idea is they're going to use anyways. And if you share needles, horrible things will happen. If you get a clean needle, at least you are going to be using safer. So these are part of what's called harm reduction. It's a more progressive model of, of working with uh, substance misuse. They are all over in some places and other places there are none. And it's, it's, you know, slowly moving towards being the norm. About a year ago, uh, a group in Charleston, not, not far from me, we're, we're, we're start trying to start the second above ground needle exchange in, in the entire state of South Carolina. 
and they got a grant from a from a national harm reduction organization for almost a million dollars to do this, which was a huge deal. The state of South Carolina got wind of this. They stepped in and they told the organization, if you give them that money, we are going to take it away. And they had mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, the grant got pulled and they had to go back underground and serve people that way. That is a perfect encapsulation of the state of South Carolina. Uh, unfortunately, you know, our governor is pretty uh, old school and harmful in that way. Um, and it's, it's, it's rough. And yet there are places that are way worse down here. The South is not getting on board with a lot of these ideas, which is really sad because a lot of these places, uh, the substance misuse is very high. Uh, and unfortunately, going back to what I was saying earlier, that stigma still remains so that the, the white Southerner who is struggling with substance misuse can distance themselves and say, okay, but I'm not you know, I'm not an addict. An addict is, you know, again, fill in every horrible uh, racist stereotype you can. So that's unintentional, right? I mean, that, that has been done to fuel separation for decades. But people are dying because of this. And, and it's really sad. Um, and I've had people say to me, well, then why don't you stay down there and keep fighting? And I'll be 100% honest. I don't have, as much as I care about this, it's not been good for my own mental health. It's been a very difficult time down here. Um, mm -hmm. My wife and I felt very alienated in this community that is so repressive and, and very outdated. Um, I literally, this is, this is off topic, but I literally got called a radical and an extremist for supporting Black Lives Matter by a person who called himself a progressive. So that's, that's where we are in, in this society. Um, so to answer your question, yes, the, the, the different regions of the country and even different countries around the world are doing this in different ways. Yeah, um, that's crazy. I mean, I, I feel like when you, when you turn a blind eye to something, even if like the, the hospitality thing is, um, because here in Louisville, this is supposed to be like the South um, is like, I don't know. It's like, it's Southern, um, apparently, even though it's like an hour and a half from Cincy. Um, but, um, but I do, I do think that like, sometimes um, it, it comes off as really like uh, friendly and nice, but it's because a lot of things aren't talked about. That's and right. when a lot of things aren't talked about, you're really like hurting a lot of people who have to keep things inside or not get help. Um, so that's really ha that's really sad to um, hear um, about the climate of like southern states. Even though it's not surprising to me, um, <laughs> it's not surprising. Um, but uh, so I want to go into the topic of um, talking about um, um, suicide. Um, and I know like now um, we've actually never brought this up on this show, um, but I think it's. Um, important to talk about with um, more media um, being brought up, like the show 13 Reasons Why. Um, and, you know, before, I don't know if you've seen it on Netflix, but to be honest, that was, um, it, that was something that nobody ever talked about. Um, and um, like in Cincy, I'm from, um, I went to school, I went to Marymount and we've had some issues and um, it was like always this covered up story. So uh, when it's something like that, that's so kind of, it seems so dark, um, how do you bring it up? Um, like, how do we have real conversations? Because now, like, 
everybody's so isolated. I felt so isolated. Um, and there's like seasonal depression is a real thing. There's a, a whole lot of things that kind of keep us separated and people's mental health is really struggling. Um, how do we bring up things like, how are you like really doing? Like um, if you feel like you want to reach out or you need to reach out to a person without kind of implying something. Yeah, that's a really great question. And on um, uh, October the 9th, my episode uh, of my podcast was interviewing a father-daughter team who host Leaving the Valley, which is a podcast about suicide. And um, they made a distinction that I think is incredibly important because you brought up the show that they also talked about, 13 Reasons Why. There is an idea, a very outdated idea, that if we talk about suicide, more people will commit suicide, which is flat out false. In fact, there's a lot of data to say that that's false, but it sticks around anyways, as a lot of things do. Um, and it came up a lot around that show. Now, the tr- the kernel of truth in that is that the more you talk about suicide methods you will see rises in using that method of suicide. So there is a distinction to be made there. You know, when you have a when you have a famous person who takes their own life and the media relentlessly focuses on how they did it, you do see a giant rise in copycats. Now, a lot of people who don't like to think about these things immediately point at it and say, see, talking about suicide causes suicide. That's not the case. Talking about suicide methods causes copycat methods. So that's very important to understand. To answer Oh, go ahead. So um, in that show in particular, they, I mean, they were, it's very specifically had methods and like you saw like whole bunch. So um, because the the whole copycat methods, which I've never heard of that term, but it makes sense. So, um, I mean, you talk do you talk about the whys and what led up to it and not the how it happened sort of thing because because a lot of things I feel like can be used like as a um I don't I mean uh, anything can be used to harm yourself so like um so is it better to focus on the leading ups and like um instead of stay away from the pills or like you know stuff like that so the general consensus is that roughly 50-50 uh, suicide attempts are, you know, 50% are planned and 50% are spur of the moment. And what that means is that person may have already had the suicidal ideation, but they didn't have a plan and then a situation presented itself. And you see that a lot in extreme circumstances, you know, um, people who get busted for, fill in the blank, child pornography who immediately take their own lives, they may have been feeling that, oh my God, if I get caught, I I can't go on feeling. And then they get caught and they immediately take the first method. They jump out, whatever the case is. But for the other 50%, these people have thought through what they're going to do. And and there are ways to address both of those, right? I mean, if somebody just reacts to an immediate situation by taking their own life, they were already struggling with something. So again, that goes back to what I was saying earlier about normalizing vulnerability, normalizing struggle. But for the 50% who have a plan, the generally accepted method is you say, you know, how we reach out, how are you, what's going on? 
and don't take the, oh, I'm fine response as an answer, right? Actually say, no, you know, what's going on? And if they won't open up, this is where vulnerability is so important. You open up first. You know, you get somebody talking by saying, hey, this is what something, you know, here's what I'm going through, right? Because more people are going to feel, oh, okay, we can do this if you yourself are, are opening up first. So once you get them to admit, okay, you know, things have been rough. I'm not, you know, whatever the case is, flat out ask them, say, hey, have you, you know, have you thought about ending your life? Or has it, has that even crossed your mind? Now, most of the time, you know, you're a caring friend of sister, whatever the case is, they're going to say, no, I would never do that. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. All right. I love you. I just was scared. I'm glad to hear that. But if they say, I mean, you know, it's crossed my mind. Then you say, oh my God, I'm so sorry to hear that. I, I can't imagine how you're feeling. Do you have a plan? And if they say, no, I've just been feeling that way. Well, then you've got time, you know, you, okay. You know, I'm so sorry. Let's talk about this. You know, I'm here for you, that kind of thing. If they say, yes, you go, okay. Would you mind sharing that with me? And, you know, if it's something broad, I thought about, you know, jumping off some, I, I thought about um, overdosing. You say, okay, well, do you have access to that item? Right. Or, or, you know, um, if they say they want to overdose, well, well, do you, do you have pills around? Is that, is, is this the thing that you could actually do? And so by continuing to drill down, you give, give them a more opportunities to sort of tell you, no, I'm not really going to do this or to expose the fact that they do have a plan. And then you get more information to step in as that person to say, you know, I love you a lot and I don't want that to happen. You know, can we work together? Can, you know, can I be there for you? What, what do you need right now? And if it gets to a point where they really are like, I'm literally sitting here with a gun, then it gives you the tools you need or the information you need to take action. So there are a lot of steps along the way. And hopefully they give you that out to say, no, I haven't really, or yes, I've thought about it, but I don't have a plan. And then you can express to them, Okay, I, I just I want you to know that I love you. I don't want to lose you. What can I do to help you? That kind of thing. But if you actually get down to that final question and they are literally sitting there, you know, with a bottle of pills, they're, they're on a ledge somewhere. That's where you spring into action, either yourself or by calling authorities, which is very difficult in this country because you're probably going to get a policeman and that's not going to go well. But there are ways to to call mental, you know, mental health lines or something like that where other people may be the one showing up instead of a cop with a gun. Mm. I think um, I uh, there's been like times where it's it's for me. I think it's like, oh, it's so everything is so bad. Like with, um, I mean, I'm in Louisville, and this is where Brianna Taylor was shot, and it was just so emotionally draining. Um, and then you've got you just you've got so many different factors, and then it's like. It's more of a, um, it's more of a indifference sometimes. Like, so it's not like I'm actively gonna do X, Y, Z. It's like, um, I don't, if something in danger was coming, I don't know like how fast I would run, like sort of thing. So I feel like that conversation is, would be a little different um, because it's like, everything is so gloomy around um, and it's like, how do you like liven up your spirit? Like, how do you keep pushing um, past everything that seems so dark? 
um, with the elections, with the high intentions. And I mean, honestly, I think it's a good thing because people are showing more of who they are. But um, at the same time, it's just like, how do you like, do you ignore what's going on? Or because that's going to just kind of be a worse situation if you pretend like you don't know what's going on. Um, so I don't know. That's a great question. And uh, so first off, and let me say that I'm so sorry you're feeling that way and that I can't imagine being a woman of color, especially in Louisville. Like that would be, that is a, a thing I literally cannot even, uh, I cannot imagine. But I, I, I empathize with you. Uh, I think that that goes back to, at least for me, my brand of choose your struggle, my buzzword, my hashtag, um, basically what that translates down to is recognizing exactly as you said, look, things are tough. And, and as a progressive person, I am, if I wanted to, I could find a lot of reasons to be pretty um, down about the, the, the direction we're heading in. I mean, there are a lot of reasons. Choose Your Struggle is all about recognizing you cannot fix everything. And when you try to fix 10 different things, you know, it gets 10% of you as opposed to picking two or three things that you really can have an impact on. And, and that's one of the reasons that I have focused on those three topics that are the focuses of my show. And that's mental health, substance misuse and recovery and drug, drug use and drug policy, because I can play in that sandbox, right? I have personal experience. I have um, a, a, a true passion for these things. And I have the ability to make change there by getting these messages out, by forcing people to have these hard conversations. If I wanted to step in and talk about, oh man, I don't even know, like energy policy in this country, I would have no idea where to begin. I care about those issues. I think that environmental environmentalism is a thing we all need to care about because we're kind of at a point where we don't have a choice not to care about it. But that being said, I don't have the expertise there. I can't create change in that realm. I can follow other amazing leaders who tell me great things that I can be doing. And my, we do all of that. My wife and I compost, we recycle way more than we throw away. We've stopped shopping at Amazon as much. That's a, that's a good one. Um, but I can't lead in that respect. And so I don't try. I, I listen to people I care about. I read everything I can, but I'm not out there trying to lead that, that work the way I am on those other policies because I are those other topics, because I believe I can lead on those. And, and that's tough sometimes because there's a lot to care about, but recognizing where you can lead and where you can take a step back and let other people lead that you believe in, that you trust, it has a way of sort of putting you at ease and saying, all right, I know I got this. I believe in them to do that. Together, we're going to make real change as opposed to trying to be the person, you know, on everything because that's a way to get burnout real quick. Yeah, it's like teamwork makes the dream work. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, and I, I just wanted to hone into the aspect of you stepping back and wanting to uh, let other people lead in the their areas of expertise and you lead in your own areas of expertise, kind of like divide and conquer, although not not exactly that term. Yeah. But I, I just wanted to say, like, how do you determine which are the people you think are trustworthy to follow or just like where do you get your sources? Because you're very knowledgeable on all of these like policies that you uh, talk about. 
But how about the things that you're not so familiar with or the things that you're not necessarily an expert on? How do you like, mm. trust those sources? Well, that's, um, that's a great question. And thank you for calling me knowledgeable. That's very kind of you. Um, so I read voraciously. My, my wife, I'm really lucky I chose well in, 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 a, in terms of a partner who also reads voraciously. Uh, and she, we, we talk about what we're reading. Uh, we read the New York Times religiously because there's not a lot of really truly great journalism left and the times is is doing it better than most um the atlantic magazine i think is one of the best resources out there some of the smartest thinkers alive are writing for that magazine uh we both support or together we support numerous npr uh outlets because true independent journalism is something that is disappearing and um that's terrifying to me. And so I, I truly believe in, in, in that. But also um, making sure that you're vetting in a way that isn't sadly being done anymore, right? It's really easy to jump on Twitter, see something that confirms your worldview and go, oh, that has to be true. Well, that's how we get all this fake news, right? I mean, it, it's not just, okay, the right sort of loves this, the left sort of does it unintentionally. It's my uh, is my personal belief, but we all need to be checking these things, right? And mm -hmm. it's easy to say, oh, the Times just isn't covering this story. And sometimes that is literally true, uh, mm -hmm. especially I love the show Trigger Warning by Killer Mike. That if, if you're not watching that, it's on Netflix. It's covering topics that essentially the, the news doesn't want to talk about, but a lot of it is true. Um, there's a lot of good information out there that can be fact-checked in a way that makes sense, right? Michelle Alexander, I didn't reference this book again, the, the new Jim Crow, all of that is meticulously sourced and data-driven, right? The news isn't covering this, but that doesn't make it not true. It just means that, you know, this is a, one of their blind spots. It would be easy for me to write a similar book as the new Jim Crow and not source any of it, right? But Michelle Alexander, line by line was like, all right, well, here's the data for this, here's the whatever. So when you see that, you know, okay, that is a trustworthy source. Unfortunately, we have people out there who think that that means, oh, you know, they're buying into the global conspiracy. Get out of here with that BS, right? There are a lot of conspiracies. So I'm with you that there's a lot of things we should be questioning. But why is it easier to believe that there's a giant conspiracy trying to make us believe that you know, black lives don't actually matter all the BS when in reality, the, the, the data is showing us that this is all true. So mm -hmm. making sure you're checking sources and data is incredibly important. And some of these places deserve our trust. Mm -hmm. But that's a that's a great question. And it's going to get tougher and tougher going down the road as these uh, journalistic out um, outlets start to close you know, more rapidly, or, um, you know, Sinclair Media Group buying up everybody and laying everyone off. It's it's scary, and it's becoming much more difficult. Yeah, it's kind of like a domination, uh, I mean, uh, monopoly, mm -hmm. in terms of maybe a few or one or a few organizations or corporations, I should say, buy up those uh, entities. And then yeah. it, it sort of would have a greater impact just because, oh, now you're the parent company, so you get to influence how these like subsidiaries are going to run um and and that i think will always change the content itself and i i was lucky enough when i was in um last semester uh 
uh, Rochester's one of Rochester's local NPR stations are are is called WXXI, and I got the chance to work there and see how they run. Uh, it is true that they're always having to have those like donation drives because literally without donation they probably wouldn't be able to run. Right. And mm-hmm. uh, it's interesting to see how sometimes like it's so easy for certain groups of people to earn and then for information that are actually really important to society doesn't really get the attention anymore like probably gossip like celebrity go- gossips are more popularized than uh news that we should always care about as right. uh, citizens of this uh, planet as well well that's very cool that you got to you got to do that i i sat on the community board of cincinnati's npr station uh or group before i before we moved and uh, yeah, it's just the, the work they're doing is incredibly important, and it's going to be even more important going forward as these places get bought out and closed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love NPR. I like my grandpa listened to it all the time, and so I listened to it because you know I was there. I was like, oh my gosh, they have so many programs and stuff like that. Um, I didn't know that, Carolina, that you work for NPR. That's really cool. Um, <laughs> so I wanted to kind of talk about like we talked about um, like getting um kind of influenced by different um like me nudia, uh, media um and so i want to ask this broad question um how much time do you spend on social media and how much do you think that has impacted your mental health wonderful question um, <laughs> the answer no matter how much you spend on social media is more than you should uh it's <laughs> true <laughs> it's a great tool when used well it is a very disastrous thing when used incorrectly. So um, I spend way less than I used to. I am, uh, you know, trying to spend more. I've eliminated doom scrolling from my life. I decided now, you know, there's just so much great information out there that my time spent endlessly scrolling is wasted time. You know, if, if perfect example, if our grandparents as kids you know, could look forward to a time when we literally had the entire world in our pockets and we told them, oh, we spend all day looking at what Kim Kardashian is doing with her food. They would be like, we're not gonna have kids. We're just, this is it. We're not, we're not making kids. This is terrible. So I try to spend more time reading. Um, you know, if I have my phone, uh, I, I, I want it to be doing something good. That's why I'm on LinkedIn all the time is meeting incredible people. If I read something that just blows me away, the first thing I do is go to LinkedIn and find that person, send them a message just saying, thank you for, for writing this. I, I found it incredible. And that's how I've gotten to have so amazing people on my podcast because people appreciate that, right? I mean, they're not writing this just to throw it out into the void. They're writing this hoping it'll have a social impact. And so, um, you know, I, I try to use LinkedIn now more for good. I'm not just LinkedIn, social media more for good. Uh, that's tough sometimes because it can be, it can suck you in real quick. Um, but I also have a rule that I don't engage with trolls and it's pretty easy to spot a troll, right? I, and I'm, I just don't mm-hmm. have time for it. Not, you don't win anything by having a fight with some, uh, you know, picture of a, of a long dead civil rights or a, a civil war captain, you know, on, on, on Twitter. There's nothing good that comes out of that. So um, the answer to your question is way less than I used to. Uh, and if I'm on social media, I'm trying to do something good with it and not not just endlessly scroll or fight with people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I recently like 
um there's uh, there's like screen time that i just discovered i'm kind of late to the party um and so i've been trying to use that um and be less on my phone um but it's still i mean obviously you can always override that um but it's just like you can really get drained and like especially with people talking about conversations and i mean um it can just be a very draining to be on social media all the time so i've been trying to like cut back or whatever um, well, so a couple <laughs> tips that have been really helpful for me that I picked up from other people. I'm not, I, I, I definitely don't claim ownership of this. I've just learned. I took Facebook off my phone um, and that, you know, I keep it. I think Instagram is mostly good uh, in the fact that it's more happy, but it can lead to yeah. people thinking their life is a lot less fun or exciting or sexy or whatever because people only put the good stuff on social media, right? So, mm. I have Instagram because I like looking at travel pictures and, and stuff like that. Uh, and, and Twitter for, you know, if I, oh, hey, did you see, I'll immediately go to Twitter and see if I can find a, a link to, you know, the Times or to Time Magazine, whatever the case is, uh, to read a story much quicker than I would just by finding it on Google. But uh, I no longer take my phone to bed with me at night. Uh, that was a huge, huge uh, positive in my life as I leave my phone out in the living room. Um, and also I wake up naturally now, which is wonderful. I don't wake up to an alarm anymore, which is very nice. But, uh, then you don't spend, you know, th that last half an hour before bed and just reading, it's not just scrolling endlessly. And when I wake up, my first thing is now, you know, my wife, my, my dog, it's not, uh, picking up my phone and scrolling endlessly. So that's definitely a huge, a huge tip. Mm, phone in another room at night. That is good. Cause I, there's literally, is that's what I do. Like, yeah. like you know while you're before you go to bed oh let me just scroll through something um yeah. i think pinterest i feel like pinterest is a platform that's like <laughs> i think it i feel like pinterest encourages like creativity and like inspiration i feel like that's one um that is not too like um well, I don't know. I guess it could be celebrity focused. And if you specifically search for it and it is custom, like it's personalized, like all the other platforms. But um, when people, when I ask people about, about how you use these things, you know, there's yeah, good and there's bad, but it's all about how you use it. That's true. That's true. Okay. So we're kind of like wrapping up, but um, do you have any like resources that you kind of point people to when they want, um, they want help? with addiction or, um, you know, a place to reach out to talk openly about some of the problems that they face? Um, like, where should they go if they if there's like a list, um, you know, something like that or something local to them? What do you say? Yeah, so the number one tip I would give, and, and, and I want to, to say this to literally everybody, is reach out. There is somebody in your life who wants to talk. Um, and in fact, if you don't have anyone, I'm going to go ahead and, vo and uh, volunteer both the hosts of this podcast. I am <laughs> they would both love to talk to you. Um, or if you have no one, give me a call. Find me on social media on my website at jshiffman.com and reach out because uh, we have a saying in this, in this business that we'd rather spend two hours talking to you today than two hours at your funeral tomorrow. So uh, reach out to me, reach out to either one of these incredible hosts who you know, honestly, the, the, the number one thing is having these conversations, right? People won't get the help they need until we can just start having the conversation. So thank you to both of you for, for doing that. I mean, we need all hands on deck. And so I really commend both of you for doing this. I wish I was doing this at, at your age, 
You know, when I was in college, the first time uh, was when I was struggling with my substance misuse issue and I wasn't talking about it. So I really applaud both of you guys are awesome. Um, you know, it, we didn't have this. And I'm going to sound old as shit for a second. <laughs> when I was your age, uh, and I'm in my mid thirties now, when I was your age and I was at my worst, we didn't have these resources to find help, right? Um, Reddit had just started. Twitter wasn't even a thing yet. Facebook was still like, I remember waiting until I got my college email so I could sign up for Facebook, right? So <laughs> you, the idea that you could find groups for people who were going through what you were going through, that was just not a thing. That did not exist. That does now. There are groups, I use Reddit all the time and it can be very corrosive. So I don't want to say this for everybody, but if you are struggling with a very specific thing, like my, my issue was benzodiazepines, there is a Reddit thread just for people struggling with benzodiazepines. You can find what you need on the internet now. There is something for everybody. So even if you don't think there's anyone in your life who can help you, reach out and find a way to interact with people who know what you're going through. It's not just going down to your local AA chapter where maybe you'll find someone else with your particular struggle. There are things that can help. Uh, and like I said, you know, really sincerely to both of you, thank you for doing this. Um, it's I feel like this is so rewarding for both of us. Yes. Like legit, like I get so excited to talk about like what we're doing on the show and um you know we've got this interview season and so we've been able to connect with amazing guests um while also like staying close to some something that's important to us so um we appreciate your work too um for sure uh thank you thank you for giving us um about like an hour of your day to come talk to us <laughs> yeah. and um of course we could go for another hour i love doing it <laughs> And um, I guess what's like a what's like a closing message that you will tell people um, about just getting through a day um, in today's yeah. climate? <clears throat> so, you know, as I mentioned before, reach out. That's the number one, the most important thing. And, and I, I talked about my brand, my idea of choose your struggle. You know, for me, when I was at my worst, when I was struggling with substance misuse, I didn't get to choose what I was struggling for. It was just to get out of bed, to avoid withdrawals, you know, not not to go through that. Um, and I failed more than I more than I succeeded. But now I get to choose. And that's why I work so hard on this is that I truly believe that these issues are some of the most defining issues of our time, because they cross all these superficial boundaries we've set up for ourselves, right? I mean, every demographic struggles equally with substance misuse and mental health. Every age group, every whatever, people struggle with these issues all the time. So it's a way, sort of sadly, they can bring us together by recognizing, okay, you and I, you know, person have zero in common, except for the fact we both struggle with substance misuse, except for the fact that we both have uh, days where we struggle with our mental health. It's a way to unify us. So use that opportunity, right? If you're in a situation where somebody is, is struggling, even if they don't have sort of on the surface, the things that would necessarily make you go, oh, you and I were alike, recognize that shared connection, recognize that shared experience and have a conversation. I think that's great. Um, we, we obviously agree with com having conversations too. So like 
Jay mentioned, um, Carolina and I, um, you know, if anybody uh, would like to kind of talk about certain things, uh, yeah. are open to it. That's why we kind of started this so that we can talk about it and share that that space with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, Carolina, do you have any last words you want to say? No. Um, thank you, Jay, again for your time, and then really appreciate you like sharing all this knowledge with us. And uh, lastly, a little happier. Uh, Thing that we do at the end is that we usually do a little fist bump for our end. virtual fist bump i totally yeah. forgot about it <laughs> yeah um so if you'd like to join us with this yeah <laughs> as we close out hold on yeah. i gotta like set this up okay we like this- screenshot it it's super fun i love yeah. it this is a great idea <laughs> okay you ready yeah <laughs> one two three <laughs> <laughs> okay well thank you jay for joining our show and um choose your struggle we love you we love um your mission um and so um hope you enjoy the rest of your day um and we we appreciate your time for sure well thank you both this was this was great and uh you know i've said it now nine times i'll say it one more thank you both for what you're doing we need all hands on deck and you know, the, the college age population is where a lot of people are first struggling with this stuff. And um, so people like you who are, who are, who are, you know, fighting the good fight and, and out there on the front lines, thank you for what you're doing. We need more of it. Thank you. Hi. Okay. All right. Have a good day. You too.